All right. Well, believe it or not, Chin Mai, we're recording the one hundred episode of Hash Map on Tap. Wow. Yay. Congrats. It's a big deal. Uh, you know, we discussed many topics covering data, you know, the cloud, and we had some really good guests on there, uh, just like customers, partners, even some of our own hash mappers. Mm-hmm. But for this one, our marketing team asked to do this a little bit outside the norm. Yep. And since it's the 100th episode, we are going to run through some of our favorite clips of the shows and then try to get some good commentary on what was discussed, maybe a little perspective here and there. But before we get to that, David, what are you drinking? It's HashMap on Tap. That's right. HashMap on Tap, we always got a drink. So uh, this, it's morning for me, so I'm drinking Pete's Organic French Rose Coffee. How about you? Me? So I'm here in India right now, and it's nighttime over here. And therefore, I've just settled with a nice hot cup of chamomile tea. It's Organic India's Dulce Honey and Chamomile combination. Mm, make sure you bring some back when you come oh, back to the stateside. For sure. And so you said it was the 100th episode, right? It's an anniversary. And do you know what the tradition says about anniversaries? Nope. Again, so we are going to take that walk down the memory lane. A few episodes Uh, that we want to share again, revisit for their great advice, insights. And so to kick things off, I want to start with a clip from our episode 54 titled Journey to the Cloud and Snowflake with Waste Management's Tyler Wheatley where Tyler talks about a case in point for this dominating theme, wouldn't you say, for our decade, the big cloud data migration. Let's take a listen. So put, maybe put you on the spot a little bit. So if you, if you had to rate uh, Natiza, your Natiza appliance, which you mentioned, you know, very simple, low maintenance, you had to rate Snowflake, scale of zero to 10, with 10 being the best experience around low infrastructure effort, low maintenance, low tuning optimization. Where, how, how would you rate those on a scale of, of uh, zero to 10 for Natiza and Snowflake? I'll give Snowflake a nine, give um, Natiza like a, like a seven, you know? The only problem with Natiza is, well, not the only problem, right? So all the concurrencies, there's the standard architectural stuff, but I'm just saying from a day-to-day running of it, yeah, it's pretty simple, right? But you have spinning disks, you know, you've got components in the data center that can fail and we have to call IBM out to the data center probably at least once a month to work on one yeah. of the four appliances that I have, you know, whether that's to replace a disk or some other component in the rack. So that's the biggest difference. And then other than just, you know, the, the scale, the scalability, appliances are what appliances are. I'm not going to ding them for not being scalable. Yeah. We already, yeah. already knew yeah. that. All right, so when I listened to Tyler discussing the on-premise appliance versus cloud, I noticed that for the most part, the appliance really wasn't that bad. Yeah. I mean, he gave it a 7 out of 10. I mean, that seems pretty good. It is. It's a fair comparison. But he then immediately followed it up with the not-so-good maintenance aspect, which is true because one of the huge benefits of cloud computing should be the fact that hardware maintenance is reduced pretty much zero as compared to these appliance space warehouses, right? So, you know, besides the actual provisioning that you have to do, I guess. Yeah, agreed, yeah. And here they're discussing like Snowflake cloud data platform, of course, and therefore we always think of SaaS, right? So software uh-huh. as a service versus platform as a service. And to me, SaaS is one of the paradigms that really has to perform a balancing act, if you will, because, I mean, the vendor, in this case, Snowflake, wants to make these mundane, these easy processes or kind of the, the not easy, but the kind of the, the day-to-day in-and-out processes, they want to make that kind of provisioning a snap. Yes, but 
At the same time, the vendor should not completely box the customer in as well, right? There should be some flexibility in the offering wherever it is needed. And Snowflake shines on scale and ability to elastically spin up new clusters, even automatically. So you heard Tyler reference the fact too, right, that concurrency can be an issue when you have a finite amount of compute, which ties back to how things were done previously in the previous decade and where Snowflake is now making a huge wave of change. And last but not least, you know, and like they want to drive goes out, but really like anything, a switch or anything goes out, right? You got your cloud provider handling that maintenance. You know, one of the drawbacks to your proprietary appliance really is that, you know, most vendors, if not all of them, require that appliance to be updated or handled by that vendor. So that, you know, really has potential for downtime. All right. Well, that's pretty good. Let's let's move on to the next one. I like episode 61. So episode 61 is accelerating digital transformations with the cloud and Snowflake with Richie Bachala. So to my, can you please try to keep quiet on this one? Hey, Halo will be pushing. I feel like there's this, because again, it's it's this thing that comes up over and over again. I feel like there's this continuum between a traditional data model, like you guys are using, and this ultimate flexibility, maybe, that something like Snowflake gives you. And it, it feels like both ends of the continuum, maybe there's a point that depending mm-hmm. on your requirements, like you said, depending on your skill sets, how, how what have we been doing over the years? How quick, to me, it's all about what can I use? What Where can I be on that continuum to deliver those data products and data outcomes the fastest to my consumers that are the most sustainable and do the most for the business? And I think it shifts on that continuum back and forth, depending on what type of company you are, what your skills right. are, what your technologies are, and where you're coming from. And there's no one answer that's exactly right on that. And But it it seems like it's always a debate between, you know, one side versus the other. And I, I feel like the meeting in the middle is is probably where most companies are, are going these days. Right. And, and you said it right. Uh, you know, that's exactly what it is, because there is time to market and every, everything needs to be accelerated. So, yeah. so the answer is dump everything into it, throw a bunch of compute at it, and then you'll find the answer and then we will figure it out later. I mean, that's that's the way the industry is moving yeah. towards. That's what cloud enables us. I mean, you know, hey, you want to you wanna put $10,000 to solve this one problem or you want to build it? Like, so that, again, is, is it an operational reporting need or is it a one-time data science need? Mm-hmm. Is the question that you need to define, right? For majority of your operational reporting need that has an SLA that needs things need to be delivered for your end users at a certain time and multiple times during the day, and it needs to be correct, right? So that means you can't just dump all your files and expect a model to, to churn and give you those outputs every day, every four hours, mm-hmm. you know? So, so for things like that, a good re- a relational data model, be it Snowflake or anywhere, is going to be very valuable for sustenance of that product for the next 10 years. Imagine, or next whatever, how many or number of years you need to be. But if it is a one-time thing, yeah, nobody has the time to write the complete ETL stack, get it into staging area and do, do a nice little star schema or dimension model or normalize the data. No, you don't, nobody has that time. It's just like one time you're trying to find some kind of a forecast value, and then you know, just dump all your files, all your XML files into Snowflake or blob storage and have have a query run on it, and it might take four or five hours, and it's a throwaway work anyway. So you get your extract, keep it ready. So, like you said, you know, for most use cases, that's how I divide them up, mm-hmm. right? 
And that is like operational reporting versus one-time needs or, or something to do with a forecast model or for a data science model. Yeah. Okay, can I talk now? So yeah, there are a few things here that I want to discuss. Uh, I've always felt that the scalability aspect of uh, a distributed system also takes care of this one resource, which is our data itself, based on how it is designed, how it is modeled and laid out, right? And therefore, I feel Richie is spot on. You truly have to understand the use case, what you're trying to do. Most importantly, recognize the boundaries of that use case. 100%. Yeah, he gets it right on. I mean, the typical thought is that everything, right, needs to be some formal data pipeline. Yeah, but truly, many times you can utilize the data just as the need arises, right? And there's a lot of tools to kind of help with that on-demand utilization. Yep, exactly. So tools like DBD can be used almost by anyone who knows SQL and then can slice and dice the data as the secret. And then it also has the advantage that it can be pulled back just as easily once done. All right, so that leads to me, at least to the efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these platforms nowadays, right? We can create structures, we can compute over billions of rows, build aggregations, and all else in seconds or minutes versus hours in these older systems or even on the current OLTP systems. But you know what? I would suggest laying down some guidelines of how users are to play in these sandbox uh, playground type of environments. They should have their own compute cluster so they don't affect other people. Uh, so there could be parallel sandboxes uh, type of environment created. And then follow naming conventions so objects also do not get overridden by the team members by any chance. And monitoring turned on so that they do not overspend, which is very, very critical. Yep, agreed. So let's move on. And next, I think I'll uh, I'll want to play the episode 63, which was the KBI show with HashMap's own Scotty Bryan. Let's see what Scotty had on his mind back then. Where we really messed up, and, and I do see this with a, a few organizations, is underestimating the, the power of a cloud data platform. And, and fill in the blank of whatever cloud platform you want. The, the magnitude of computational power, the fact that you're not having to share, share the resource of, of data storage with data computation, it makes things run faster. Just a, a, a quick anecdote on that. I was talking to a lady who was in an accounting firm or an accounting department, not, not with the company that, that I worked at. And they had, they had recently migrated to the cloud. And she was talking about how you know, she was frustrated because they'd been promised so many great things. And uh, they were still running their their quarterly report at the monthly grain and creating a side access database to load that in. And I talked to her and said, you know, I, I think if you go to your IT department and ask them to expand your filters, you'll get, you know, two or three years of, of transactional level data and you'll get it, you know, in seven or eight seconds. Mm-hmm. She did. And she got exactly what she wanted. She was extremely surprised about what the technology stack could deliver. And so I think that's that's one thing that you don't want to underestimate is that when you're moving to the cloud, if you're moving from an on-prem system, especially if it's older and, and you've had to make some shortcuts because you're trying to avoid having to buy that extra server in your in your warehouse, moving over to the cloud, it, it just moves so much faster. It's so much more performant that uh, you can you can migrate that granular data over and and have that accessible and available to anybody from the CEO on down, and you're not going to see a huge performance issue. Okay, David, now that you've heard the clip, it's your turn, your turn to pontificate. Thanks a lot. You can probably get that word out. So, ha. Ah, yes, okay. The remnants of the old paradigm. Right? 
<laughs> That's right. Pontificate is such a great word. Uh, but yeah, these remnants of this old paradigm. So, uh, you know, like being moved to the new system, right? So Scotty makes a great point. And we've seen this over and over, right? When folks migrate to a newer, more elastic system, you know, they tend to leave things the same because, you know, that's just how it worked before, right? But truly just as important as, you know, virtually unlimited storage or redundant systems that the cloud brings, you know, it's you got to harness that platform's mm-hmm. compute power. Yep. So teams were so used to operating in time slots back then as well, right? So there are organizations where they cannot or are not allowed to run various processes until a certain time, like late night or once a month because of this contention issues. Now, with compute being so abundant and storage being truly separated from this compute um, aspect, contention is no more uh, an issue. Team A running a monstrous query does not have to affect team B uh, running any other query any longer. Yep, it's not like shared sources too are just now mm-hmm. minimal, right? So, so what we recommend kind of is you allocate compute you know, based on your workload. You know, don't think of having one or two large compute clusters and doing everything for those. You know, think separating workloads according to need. Large queries, large compute. Data movement or small transformations, small compute. And just, just one more thing though, that when you separate out your compute as well, you can better understand utilization by each team or unit versus the organization as a whole. And this can be a huge benefit in budgeting and controlling costs, as we have seen in so many cases out there. Agreed. All right, well, let's jump over to episode 66. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit. And we're going to listen to Activating Operation Analytics in the Cloud with the Census CEO and co-founder, Boris Jade. Any kind of a development language focus, Python, Go, Java, mm. what, what's, uh, what's, the, what's the going standard at Census? That's a, that's a good question, too. Okay, so, I mean, we don't, it's, this is an interesting question, because I think there's a lot of people who will bias on this. Like, we, we are, like I said, a lot of seasoned veterans here. There's a lot of geeking out about Clojure versus Go versus Ruby. But the core of our, our website is made in, in Ruby and Rails and, uh, and like a bunch of TypeScript and, and, and JavaScript on the, on the yeah. front end. So that's probably the bulk of, of census. But I think over time, it will become even more polyglot. And we love, like, the, I think there's people who hate working in those languages. So for them, that's a, that's a hard turnoff. But for us, your background matters like very little. We, we, we all come from different kind of programming language backgrounds and stuff. So... Uh, as long as you're pragmatic, that's really the the number one thing for for a startup like ours is you can't be enamored with building cathedrals. You have to you have to be willing to kind of build a shed and then a house and then a cathedral as you go. I like that, man. Shed, house, cathedral. Yeah, the cathedral never gets to market. So 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 wait. Don't you want to build every aspect of this entire implementation all at once and waterfall it? <laughs> that's a joke, by the way. Of course not. This mentality stems from the old paradigm of systems should be monolithic and all-encompassing. That truly can no longer happen. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, what Boris stated about, you know, being a polyglot and having understandably the right tool to you know, address that particular issue. Of course, in their case, they're talking more about development tooling, right, and development languages. But his message goes right along with what we're seeing in the data space. You know, there are companies that are extremely good and they lead the way in various parts of that data engineering process. Exactly. Some have extremely robust orchestration. Some have unmatched ability to transform data with simplistic syntax and push down SQL. And yet some have the ability to abstract the data in a virtualization concept. And it goes on and on these patterns. 
the days of choosing one product to do everything, uh, I don't think they exist anymore. That's true. And they also pose a bit of a problem, though, if you think about it, right? If, you like, if anyone's ever seen Matt Turk's <laughs> snapshot of all the players in the various data ecosystems, it's a little mind-boggling. I mean, there's hundreds of vendors. And many of them, you know, do one or possibly, you know, a few things and they do them extremely well. So hopefully it's it's easier to create that shed like Boris State. Oh, I love that analogy, right? Shed versus the cathedral. So these these vendors, using these vendors wisely is very important. And one should remember not to get caught up in option fatigue. Acquire the tools that work for you. Um, know your use case, do what you need, benefit your short-term and hopefully long-term data strategy and start with a flexible, simple shared approach um, towards your problem um, uh, solving. Like, And this is what we promote here at HashMap and Entity. Best fit. 100% agree. Okay, so next we jump over to another one of our uh, fine partners, uh, Fivetran. As we all know, Fivetran just acquired HVR, and they also just got a huge amount of funding and $565 yep. million. That's pretty awesome. Uh, let's get some data lake perspective from the CEO, George Frazier. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to throw a ringer at you here. You, you, uh, you skipped over mentioning data lake, and I know you wrote an article for Forbes uh, not too long ago with, uh, I think the title was The Business Case for Ditching your data lake. And I think that we've all, in our, our history, uh, going back to 2012, we started in the traditional big data space and it was just extremely difficult. And you'd build out these data lakes and just nobody really delivering value out of those. I'd love to understand your thought process around that that article. And, th- and, and quite frankly, it is a question we get asked a lot as a uh, services provider. Should we even do a data lake or just skip over it? Yeah, I wrote that article because I think that a lot of people build data lakes for uh, for reasons that were true five or 10 years ago and are no longer true. So a lot of people go and build data lakes because they think it's going to save them money. Uh, they think they're going to economize on the cost of storage. Uh, and that would have been true, you know, 10 years ago when you were paying $10,000 a terabyte or whatever it was for your, you know, your on-prem data warehouse, but the cost of storage in Snowflake and BigQuery and Redshift RA3 is the same as the cost of storage in S3. Um, So that benefit has just gone away. And and many of the other benefits of data lakes have been subsumed by the new modern cloud data warehouses. And so I always urge people to look very skeptically at proposals to build a data lake and demand to know what are the concrete benefits that uh, we're going to get from this data lake? Because there are some there are some scenarios where a data lake can make sense, but they are very rare. Uh, and nine out of ten companies that I see go and build a data lake shouldn't bother. They would be better off just taking the data and going straight into a data warehouse. Yeah, I agree. I found when you plan for all of those outliers, it's really tough to get anything done. You end up not delivering on some of that uh, low hanging fruit that's sitting there. All right. Wow. That was a powerful clip. And I'm not sure I want to discuss this one because it sounds like, uh, do we choose Windows or Mac? It could be a heated debate. Uh, But since I love debate, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? So I've always been uh, on the fence about data lakes in general, I guess, because I've never been on a a big project where the folks that needed the data didn't know what was in the data. So they knew kind of all the data structures and what had to be done. So uh, 
kind of unsure that, what side to choose on this. That's true. Uh, most of the time, yes. But then again, there are cases where uh, folks are receiving data from different sources um, that have different formats, and they might want to traverse them uh, all in some form or fashion and save it for some future discovery of some, some novel use cases, right? So you have to remember that the birth of Data Lake was before there were these highly refined ingestion tools um, to take your structured, semi-structured, even unstructured data, and then easily ingest into your processing platform. That's your warehouse. Uh, that's, that's true, guys. That's one thing George you know, had a great point about. So now that ingestion is better, of course, this is Fivetran talking too. So uh, now that ingestion is better, uh, you know, we can organize our data, you know, and files, the incoming data better. So the fact that there's really no cost benefit of having, you know, data stored in files versus the actual warehouse. So this kind of lends itself to the whole storage cost mm-hmm. yeah. pass through thing like most vendors do now. So if it's 23 terabytes in a file, you know, stored in a bucket somewhere, it's the same thing if I ingested the database, that same $23 That's per true. terabyte of file. There's another thing that George keyed on to, uh, the concept of data lakehouse. And for those who don't know that concept, well, it's an architectural pattern that was popularized by Databricks, Uh, somewhere where you can ingest your data, your structured, unstructured, and everything in between in a uniform base storage layer. That's your data lake. And then process or manage it using the warehouse type constructs as needed. Yep. And that seems to be more and more prominent nowadays, I guess. And it makes sense, right? Like Sonario just mentioned. So you may want to have all these different formats in one spot. Uh, so I guess the takeaway, the takeaway from this episode, I guess, is truly uh, vet the reasons, right? Uh, understand Absolutely. why you would want a data lake. And if you think there are some fringe use cases, right, implement a data lake house. And if, and if you can get everything in and structured, then go ahead and do that. Because on average, I would say most of our clients, you know, most people we work with uh, want that data structured for the purposes they need. So the use, the use case. They need, so. All right. So now let's move on to another CEO episode. Number 76, titled Perspective on Data Observability, and a chai tea with Monte Carlo co-founder and CEO Bar Moses. Let's hear how she started out with just an idea around the concept that, for the most part, is overlooked. And so when I left Gainsight and decided to start a company, I actually explored three ideas in parallel before I started the company. And that was really helpful because that helped me see like what's sort of an idea that has strong sort of uh, fit or pull and which idea doesn't. So some of the ideas that I worked on were terrible. Like nobody could give me the time of day to even speak with me about them. And then this particular idea related to data reliability and data downtime, people would get really excited about it. And people would like call me up and say, can we spend more time talking about this? Like, yeah. what, what, what are we building? I'd love to better understand and that magic in the very early days when it was really just, you know, me and, and no product and just an idea, those were some of the early signs that gave me the confidence that there's something here. And so actually my, my partner, Lior, he was a startup founder before, and he, you know, would hang around and would listen to some of my calls and he would be like, you know, the, the kind of reactions that you're getting are, are pretty extraordinary what are people so excited? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to learn more. And the rest is history. Well, so these these three ideas, Bar, were you were you running these in parallel, or was this kind of a sequential process over time? Did you go into, let's say, uh, an advisor meeting and say, "Okay, guys, I've got I got three things here. I want to know what you think." What what did, what did you do? 
I so I actually I ran them in parallel and okay. I ran them cool. as, as if I'm running three different companies. So I actually had specific days that I would dedicate to different companies and I would be, you know, today, this is Monday, I'm all in on this company A and I would do customer development. I would be, you know, like a sales development rep. I would call people and I'd be like, you know, tell me about your problems. Can I help you? And really sort of, you know, went, went a lot there. I would, you know, actually design what a product would look like, et cetera. And then I would like finish the day, close the books, wake up in the morning and yeah. pretend like it's a totally new new uh, company. All, all three of these were pre even a single line of code. This was more just three ideas at this point, three concepts. That's right. Okay. That's right. Well, that was such a great perspective to hear on how a company could start from just the ideas that, you know, originated from comments given during these phone calls, right? Bar's energy, of course, was a driving factor. What do you think? I mean, I agree. You know, we listen to her voice. She's positive. She's ready mm-hmm. to go. She has so much energy. And the principles that she, you know, that started <clears throat> this were all based around, you know, data health tracking, troubleshooting, and preventing downtime, right? That's that's most of what Monte Carlo does. I mean, you know, truth be told, we've all been in those situations where one little change to an input file or an update to a pipeline, right, has caused disruption and literally, you know, everybody, call, you know, all hands on deck are called to try yes. to figure out the and that issue. is such an important topic, especially in today's world where, even a little downtime, a little non-availability means that you can no longer trust that company or its services. I mean, truly, we have evolved into a culture where you just expect things to work. Think of when you're going to some place that you've never been and you rely on your GPS and a mapping application to guide you. But if you get the wrong address or the application doesn't work for some reason, you get extremely frustrated, right? <laughs> I know I do. It happens so many times on Waze. Oops, I didn't say that out loud, but it does happen. Uh, I know many times, yeah, we try to make uh, you know as many assumptions and tests in the data engineering realm right as we can. But, you know, when you think about it, you have these disparate data sources, you know, multiple vendors or applications feeding data, and they're all doing their own thing, right? Their own DevOps processes. So you almost need this, you almost have to have an extra tool on top to monitor everything as it's, even as your, your pipelines that could be a year or two old are still running. And Marley, uh, excuse me, Monte Carlo is definitely, you know, an exactly in those because areas. what Monte Carlo provides is data reliability uh, at the end of it all, right? Which is such an important factor nowadays. Now, I'm starting to try to figure out if companies can actually survive without having a tool like Monte Carlo in their data stack. Yep, agreed. And speaking of data engineering folks and data reliability, so the next episode. Brings us to one of our most talked about partners, DBT Labs. Uh, so episode 86, in this episode titled The Power of Community and Analytics Engineering with Tristan Handy. He is the founder and CEO of DBT Labs. Tristan gives some great perspective about the ever-evolving data engineering community. We steal very heavily from software engineering. So the observation that I and a couple other folks had uh, back in 2015 was that the the core problems on data teams were things that software engineers already had solved for things like uh how to not repeat yourself every time you wanted to express some fairly similar piece of logic you know data analysts would would build the same thing over and over and over again and the the main way of reproduction was like copy and paste which is very fragile also like how do you support production level systems how do you, how do you make sure that like when you give a thing to your users that like it will continue to work with high high reliability 
Th it, those types of things are things that software engineers have been doing for a long time. How, how do you collaborate together with a large team to produce a, a complex analytic asset as opposed to all working kind of on your own? And, and so whether it's data ops or analytics engineering, you know, we, we can talk about what I think the differences are between those two, but the, the commonalities are that you apply software engineering principles, you write code and you write code in the, using the same principles you would if you were like building a, a web application or any other kind of code artifact. And then you use DevOps best practices, which are much newer, but, but still uh, increasingly well-established things like yeah. um, source control plus CICD um, and, and uh, instrumentation to actually, you know, automated testing, documentation to, to, to actually make sure that the work that you're doing is, is of high quality and can be used by users in a, in a way that they would, that would create trust. I mean, a lot of times the Achilles heel of all data initiatives is when you, when you, you get this, like, I think people call it a doom loop where, you know, there's, there's something in a report that's wrong and then there's there's a question and the question just keeps digging into like uh oh i i trust this less and less and less and then as people don't trust the data they disengage from the process and that that robs the initiative of of like support internally so so you really need mature systems to create that trust that creates a positive flywheel for data in the organization so I'm trying to think of a deep dive session where we've talked about like heavy data transformations and data ops where DBT labs has yeah. not been mentioned. And it's funny how synonymous the T in ELT has become uh, with DBT. It, it's a great perspective. And yet another person who just listened to what was going on around them, you know, just as Bar Moses, um, as we talked about her case, so Tristan observed very closely how DevOps operated and then thought to himself, wait, so data ops can can be the can apply can be applied the same way if we use if we have some technology to do that to make that process better. Yep, agreed. And to add grass to the flame there, you know, cloud data platforms now allow these workloads, mm -hmm. right, to be Pushed down, you know, to virtually unlimited amount of compute to do this transformation work. So we see so many orchestration tools now focusing on that, that truly that source to target, right? They're getting to raw and then letting this transformation tool like DBT, uh, letting that portion of the whole process become, you know, combined with the whole DevOps, yeah. data ops process. So ELT, we know, is the norm. There's, there's no doubt about that. But just like in the previous episode, Tristan is talking about a reliable process to be utilized, keeping that data trustworthy and this whole cycle of data um, moving is, is mainstream for sure. Lastly, the DBT community is absolutely incredible. I, I just want to mention that because I'd love to see stats, but I'm willing to bet that their Slack channel is one of the highest used Slack channels in existence. Can't figure something out. Just post it. And, you, and you'll get your help immediately. That's how uh, responsive they are on their Slack channel. And even within uh, HashMap Entity, we now offer a kickstart DBD engagement to get you going so you can get up to speed quickly with this new paradigm. Yep. I mean, even me. I've used their Slack channel quite a bit when I had just a weird question Likewise, or odd yeah. thing. And 
I had someone who's not even from DBT responding. So it's pretty awesome. All right. Now, moving right along to another company that is growing exponentially, HyperScience. So in this episode titled Lessons Learned in Building a Modern Data Stack with Eric Jones, Eric gives us the nuances of utilizing data via multiple roles. Let's have a listen. So how did you, I, what you just described, I think this is what everyone is after. I've got this, you know, this notion of self-serve for my analytics and engineering team, and that's fantastic, but I'm balancing that against getting the self-serve aspect for my actual data consumers, the folks that are in the business trying to make decisions that are being served by my analytics and engineering teams. How did you, how did you do that? How did you, how did you achieve both of those? And my, my guess is, and not meaning to try to prompt you here, but probably wasn't only tech, maybe there's a little process or some people changes. What did it take to get there? Because I think everybody's interested in that. It takes a lot of doing it wrong <laughs> to be able to get something <laughs> right. So I've done it wrong in a lot of other companies um, to yeah. where dashboards we built or products that we built don't get used. So what we've done differently at HyperScience is one, focus on, have a focus on data literacy first. Do folks have a good understanding of the data and nuances of the data that we're dealing with? Are there aligned upon and standard definitions that we can create so that when we use a term in a meeting with one group of stakeholders, it means the same thing as a meeting with another one? So really, the first step is establishing that sort of fundamental data literacy about what we're actually looking at. And then the second step is to kind of separate what is useful for an analytics group, what's useful for an engineering group is at a different level of abstraction than what's useful for an end consumer. So we go into, I spent the first month or so going through requirements gathering, not on the data infrastructure side, but just understanding from a non-technical end user, what, answer, what questions are you trying to answer? And had that drive what we developed from an infrastructure side. So the, the goal is to have something that's usable for the end user, but also scalable and robust on the, the more technical analytics side. So when I listen to Eric, it's, it's like almost like deja vu, because we have seen this numerous times in so many organizations where the data strategy alignment is just not there, right from the engineers all the way to the consumers. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there tends to be like a focus on the concept of, you know, what I think versus on every level of the organization or external organizations, right? What is needed and where we're going. So mm-hmm. I always think of like Simon Sinek has a great analogy for things like this, where he states that you know, most folks tend to focus on the mountaintop because it's big and beautiful, but forget about the climb. Uh, so yeah, you have to, you should have goals, but the, you know, the focus should be on the pieces that help you achieve those goals and not just focus on the goals themselves. His mention of data literacy is absolutely critical. Does everyone speak the same language? Many a times that's not the case as we've seen. And I do believe that data is useless unless it can be used. So if no one understands the naming conventions, the nomenclature, or how you've organized your data, it will not get used. And the company and the decision makers ultimately will suffer. Yeah, agreed. I mean, the second part, you know, about making the data, you know, usable and understanding the data usage patterns from an end user perspective is also critical. So in data engineering, right, this is where the engineers and the engineering and analytical folks architect the data correctly, but then 
layer semantics, you know, such as layered views, right? That's more easily understood and consumable by the end users. Because if you think about it, there are numerous uses for the data. You just have to make sure you accommodate. Exactly. There could be like data science work where certain formats and structures at a granular level are needed. Then the business analyst work uh, is there where the formats may be more aggregated for a larger uh, picture point of view, right? So all in all, this yep. has been a great insight. Yep, good to learn. And I like the fact that he also said, hey, he learned the most from his mistakes. Because I think that's how most you know data ops and DevOps people learn is, hey, we learn what we not wouldn't to do be and here that if we, the right direction. If it were not for our mistakes, we wouldn't be here, right? That's exactly right. Hey, folks, this is Kelly Coleffel, host of HashMap on Tap. I am interrupting this episode for a quick moment to thank everyone that listens in and subscribes to the podcast. We would certainly not be at 100 episodes without each and every one of you. Also, I want to congratulate Shushri Mishra as the winner of the AirPods Pro for our 100th episode, HashMap on Tap podcast sweepstakes. Shushri, we will be reaching out soon to you with further details. Stay tuned. Back to the show. All right, and the data usability topic segues right into our next clip for episode 92 titled Data Catalogs, Metadata Management, and LinkedIn Data Hub with Arup Jagadish. Is that right? Did I say that right? Co-founder and CTO of Acral Data. So here we get some perspective on data assets yeah. versus data products. Let's listen in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th this terminology is due credit to Jamak and others from the data mesh movement. So the, the real difference is you're stating upfront what are the best practices that allow a raw data asset to graduate into a data product. So a few things. First, how, what are the ways to access it? You know, it can be a stream, it can be a table, it can be a Kafka topic. All of them need to publish uniform ways of discoverability and the way to access it. Second, you need to declare certain key attributes like ownership, or governance attributes, like the number of data quality checks that have been run against it. So when you're looking at it, you can consume it with high confidence, right? Uh, you, you know how to access it. You know who owns it. You know the key health indicators of that. Which, and it, this is not a one-time assessment. It's something that mm -hmm. is kept live through continuous automation. So it's almost like a heartbeat. So when you look at it, you know that you're, not only humans, but also your tools can consume it safely. So that's the key distinction, whereas a, a data asset is like, you know, best effort. You're on your own, consume mm -hmm. it uh, type of a contract. I think this topic is pretty straightforward. So the way I see it is everything is basically a data asset, right? Any, any data you load, data you curate, data you want to use or derive information from is a data asset. And the keyword, I guess, asset here meaning something that can give you more insight, but you know it's more raw in nature. So what about a data product? Yeah, so I think the distinction Swaroop is trying to make here is that data assets can be used to make a data product, but then it, it's still more than just some data sitting somewhere waiting to be consumed. Think of it as, a, as the package that you receive your physical products in, right? Uh, you get a box with your actual product in it, uh, but the package will contain the labels and the directions, how to use it, the ingredient list, so on and so forth, uh, which is the metadata that helps you make sense of what's inside, how to utilize it best. So if you tie all these uh, metadata elements back 
to the data and the engineering aspect of it all, it'll make sense. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah. So the data product has a lot behind that keeps it fresh, you know, used by dates, safe access, lineage of data assets, you know, used to build a product. It's like a box of cereal. And then I get in that case, he also talked about, you know, types of packaging, right? Is it, you know, how is it wrapped? Is it individual? Is it bulk? Is it falling into a sheet where you can just scoop it in and kind of dig into, you know, kinesis or something or, or a, a, a Kafka topic, right? And so what, you know, what your data asset may be, you know, just, you know, one of the pieces may just be corn, right? So maybe I take this a little too far, but uh, so the underlying data may be very simplistic, but kind of how you package it is kind of where, where he's going with this data product. True. Yeah, maybe. I think the takeaway here is that if you build a data product, the packaging aspects, as you just said, should be put in place for the consumers to uh, be able to find it, understand it, access it, and consume it without much effort. And most of all, trust it. Yep. 100% agree. Well then, so here's another good segue. Going backwards from having all these data assets and products, all the way to developing the engineering around these assets without having to utilize actual production-grade data. Hmm, interesting. So let's have a listen to this next clip from episode 94 titled Data Accessibility and Privacy Engineering with Danielle Beringer. I, I hope I said that right. I'm sorry, Danielle, if I didn't. Of Gretel AI. So I, I think the classification and labeling capability, as well as the transformation capability, are pretty well understood in the market. These are things that data architects, data engineers, and developers are probably already doing to some degree. Classification and labeling obviously being really the metadata, um, looking at what are the characteristics of the data, what are the attributes. It's very common for data scientists that are doing feature engineering to be looking at the individual data elements and deciding you know, what should be used within machine learning models. The metadata solutions that exist today, however, often are coupled with heavy installation requirements or configuration. There's a lot you have to do in order to really create that metadata pipeline or to consume that type of information. So the labeling and classification that we're looking at, again, available via an API call, can be streaming or batch. It can be inserted at any point in the data flow. And that accessibility is the secret sauce. Um, and that's true of any of the three capabilities. The second transformation would be anonymizing or de-identifying the data. So you look at traditional extract, transform, and load. When we talk about transform, this is changing the data fundamentally. So you change a name, you can mask, you can obfuscate. Um, it is reversible, though. And in some cases, it needs to be if you have to derive data back to the original values. Okay. That's the, that's the second category. And the third category where I really think our, our greatest emphasis in our um, innovation offering is around synthetics. So synthetics, I'm going to give the example of how I found Gretel, because I think um, when I had a challenge with data, I found Gretel and I, I really was surprised by how easy and how straightforward their approach was to synthesizing data. So in my prior role, we were working in a cloud-based uh, data platform that had sandboxes. So uh -huh. we were offering to our knowledge workers, our data scientists and developers, sandboxes where they could do experimentation, they could do proof of concepts, they had the ability to um, have access to data products um, that they were authorized for. 
But the challenge we had was production data really wasn't supposed to be replicated. There were very strict governance rules in place. And so the teams were struggling with having access to data that looked and felt like the real thing, but they weren't necessarily authorized to do snapshots of production data into these sandboxes. So when I started to research the availability of synthetic data, what sparked my curiosity with Gretel was that the synthetic data could be generated easily and it could have the same shape and the same statistical distribution as the original data. So it could be very satiating to users that had to have something that looked and felt like real data, but it also could be done to an unlimited volume. So one of the greatest challenges we had uh, when working with data is that our data sets were either um, unbalanced, you know, we had too much representation of one um, attribute or pool of data, and we needed to really have other types of data, you know, represented in that data set. Um, we also, you know, again, this is to reduce bias, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm but we also didn't have enough. So not having enough data, enough volume of data really kept us from fully testing our application products, our application development, doing user acceptance testing. And so the synthetics really provided this kind of interesting pathway to better testing, earlier development, um, minimizing risks by not having people have to have the original production sensitive data. And so these these different types of ways that we could take a synthetic data product and drop it in to the software development lifecycle was so interesting to me. And that's really where the light bulb went off for me um, when I when I found Gretel. And um, ultimately, I was so pleased that it's turned into something that I can embrace um, in my job function now, you know, being part of the company. Okay, so this is actually an area we don't typically touch on much, probably because we do most of this manually, that we don't even stop to think that there are some great tools like Gretle AI that can dramatically help in this area. What do you think? Yep, and I agree. And typically we think of like always cloning data, right, from fraud. And we may scrub a little bit, you know, whatever's enough. But listen to Danielle, uh, you see how much more, you know, is in the AI space, like classification and labeling and the characteristics and attributes of all the data. But then when you really want that data from production and also have to honor the end users or customers privacy, whose data is there in production, tools like Gretel AI can anonymize that for you. Things like partial masking or uh, obfuscating fields, uh, even building hash values that can be unhashed as needed to help find issues of problem resolutions. So in today's world, though we know that most common breaches of data security still happen internally. And by utilizing such tools, uh, of course, building a workflow and governance standards around the cloning and the whole anonymization process, companies can better protect their IP and themselves from such breaches. Yep. And what caught my eye as well was the fact that she's talked about synthesizing data. You know, this is where a tool can create data that's meaningful uh, versus having to you know, do all that stuff in production. And more on that, that what she said was kind of neat is their tool, actually, they can create them a large amount of data, you know, to be more realistic, because we've all had those data sets, you know, where you try to use them. And it's kind of based on a real, I guess, more synthesized basic algorithms. So when you try to run some reports or do some queries, you get all these biases, right? Because everything's kind of lumped into a few categories. Yeah, I can I can see this truly being useful with the MLAI concepts where, you know, you can design a model to synthesize data 
with certain attributes are designed to have a gradual incline or decline as needed and then run the monitoring tools on top to see if these models have uh, that that are put in place are, are effective. Yeah, I think so. That kind of gives the whole you know thing to you know kind of predictive issue you know resolution. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right, so that brings us to episode ninety-seven. So that's really cool stuff. I, I would definitely want to read more about that. So, all right, now we're going to switch gears for a bit. Um, episode episode ninety-seven is titled "Data Integration: Five Trend and HBR at Pal Industries" with Ajay Badani. So Ajay is no stranger to the HashMap uh, podcast. Um, I think he's in about three of them now. So it's great because he's truly given a lot of insight into Powell's data transformation journey, which benefits the entire data community. So let's let's hear about uh, some of Ajay's uh, dealings with Fivetrain here recently. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that. So you've got this acceleration on the the build or configuration side. Do you see a similar? net benefit as you are, let's say, operating the pipelines or the pipelines are flowing through, do you, do you feel like you've got less oversight and management with some of these Fivetran uh, data integration points than you would maybe with a, a more developer-heavy way to go? Well, and I, I should mention, yeah, so Dynamics was the starting point because we've extended a bit from there and um, kind of just looked at the more basic, and sorry, just I'll tie up my a little bit of my question and get to, to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things we do when we were working with um, ADF is the kind of the, you you know, deliver files to a location and then you pick up files from the location. Mm-hmm. Well, picking up files from a, loca- from a location still requires effort from you. Can you facilitate an ADF? Of course you can. But again, it gets into this whole, you are, are you trying to be file-based? Is that where you want things to land? Do you want to get to Snowflake faster? So it gets a little bit into the kind of the design pattern you're you're trying to approach. And for us, the focus for us was a bit more on landing the data in Snowflake and what we do with it from there and less about maybe let's say the file location. So for Fivetran, just that kind of approach, being able to pursue that allowed us as you know, we were just kind of as you were just hinting at, uh, allowed us to go at that sooner mm-hmm. and not think of it as staged approach, if you will, like ADF to this point and then other stuff to build to do this. Fivetran kind of took some of that complexity away and let us say, well, let's look at it once it's there and then decide, is this what we need? And to your point, do I have enough control over this or do I not? And just kind of take it, you know, source by source and answer that question. Since I don't feel any sense of obligation that everything has to be there. Since Fivetran lets you bring the logs in and does a really good job of just giving you logs of everything that's happening kind of on its own. And, you know, that data is free going into your warehouse. That definitely alleviated some of the anxiousness about it, um, is that you can still monitor that directly in the target. But uh, we've used Azure Functions, and that's given yeah. us a bit more of that um, ability to expand into other places. So, so far, so good, I'd say, um, as far as looking at other sources and being able to bring that to bear where there aren't native connectors. And for initial trials, we do the file, we do the file pickup. All right, so once again, we're seeing how Fivetrain has a connector to alleviate some of the mundane uh, processes, right, and the headaches uh, around file movement and file ingestion, you know, or file data ingestion into Snowflake. And and you heard what Ajay's focus was, right? He does not want to worry about or deal with having to move these files from one place to the other. He just wants to focus on getting the data into the warehouse so that he can actually begin to use it. Yeah, and I mean, this is where five trends shines, right? Yeah. Again, you know, they're a SaaS solution. They focus on minimal setup, minimal configuration, maintenance, right? Minimal maintenance. So more importantly, you know, kind of like Ajay's point, they want you to focus on how you want to use your data, right? Now that it's in 
magically just appears in Snowflake database. That's pretty awesome. Yep, that's the main point. One of the main points that uh, Ajay makes. Let's just now get the data into Snowflake and build the engineering processes uh, from there versus focus on things that do not drive business outcomes because all the energy is focused on how do we get the data in. Yep, exactly. I mean, and I'm on that one. Like the last check, I think I looked at Fivetrain has like almost 160 connectors, right, that can help accelerate data integration. And, and data engineering, right? Not to mention the fact that you can build your own connector, right? We've had guys that do that here at HashMap they had to build their own connectors for various APIs. So in that in that case where there is no, you know, kind of pre-built connector from Fivetran. Oh yeah, absolutely. Fivetran is one of our great partners. Oh, for sure. And that leads us to our final episode in this stroll down the podcast memory lane. Episode 98, a very recent podcast, I believe. And in this episode, um, which was titled Achieve Creative Excellence with Anastasia Leng, founder and CEO at CreativeX. So Anastasia walks us through the impact that CreativeX is making for businesses. Let's take a peek. No, it's a, you know, it's, it's a great question. And thank you for reading the report. My team will be very happy to hear that. A lot of people work very hard and very long on that, given the amount of data that was involved. By the way, what it, I'm always curious on that type of content, how long did from, hey, concept, let's, we think we want to do this to getting it out the door. What was the duration? Just curious, Anastasia. The duration was, let's see, we published it in August and we started talking about it, I believe in April. Oh, that's awesome. So, yes. I mean, we initially thought it was going to take a couple of weeks. <laughs> Yeah. Did you did you have all the data at that point that you needed? We did, and so the, okay. the luxury of of the luxury that we have is because we are trusted by all of these brands to power their creative decision making. Mm-hmm. We have tremendous amount of content in our system, and so what we're able to do is basically anonymize it and mm-hmm. put it all into one giant pool and look at macro trends across all those pieces of content, which is how we were able to do an analysis across you know, a million ads, right? I, obviously there had to be a lot of work that happened to make sure we were properly anonymizing and aggregating that content. So we were making statements about the aggregate set rather than one individual brand's performance. But, you know, the reason why we did it is because this question kept coming up of, okay, great, you're going to track my best practices and you're going to mm-hmm. tell me if I'm applying them. And I think intuitively people believed that that was going to have an impact on effectiveness. but they also wanted the data, right? And I think one of the reasons they they also wanted the data is because some of these best practices, as we talked about, are established by their platform partners, right? Facebook and Google and, you know, Twitter and Snapchat, et cetera. And there's always a little bit of, you know, a healthy skepticism that we see when people say, well, you know, Facebook is telling me to do these things on Facebook, but are they actually going to work for me? Because, you know, they're also where my media dollars go to. So I I almost want to have a third party who's verifying that these are the right things for me. And so what we started to do is think about, let's make sure that these things are actually working. Mm -hmm. And the results we had were actually a lot better than what we expected. Because what we saw consistently was that for every 10% increase to creative quality score, there was a 2% decrease to CPM or cost per thousand impressions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a 2% increase to ad recall, essentially kind of, you know, the ability to, to recall an ad and associate with the brand, so branding impact. And there was a 5% decrease to cost per completed view. 
someone actually finishing watching your content. Now, this is, again, this is for every 10% increase in creative quality score. The average brand will start at 20%. We usually get them to 80 or 90 within six to 12 mm-hmm. months. Yeah, I was going to say, for these large brands, you're talking about millions of dollars yeah. of impact. Yeah. One of the metrics that we track, which we need to think of a better name for, but we call it the creative quality spend rate. Mm. And this is the amount of budget that you're putting behind content that meets your definition of creative quality. Okay. And when we first start working with a brand, it's basically our version of looking at media efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. When we first start working with a brand, what we consistently see is that only 20 to 30% of their budget is going towards content that meets their definition of quality, which means that literally not even millions, tens of millions of dollars are being put behind content that doesn't adhere to their own principles. And mm-hmm. that is now we found statistically less likely to perform as well. Wow, that's so very cool. Creative quality score. What an amazing and creative metric that seems to me. It's so important and pertinent that I'm surprised it wasn't invented or utilized earlier. We are living in this age of digital content. There's not a single business uh, alive today, I believe, for profit or non, that doesn't produce some form of digital content to talk about it's goods and services, right? And therefore, having such reporting and metrics available to evaluate that very content can be the feedback you need to up your game. Oh, exactly. I think so. I, if your marketing may be going one way, and then this report, as you get yeah. back from Creative X, may tell you a whole different thing. So, one thing that hit me was behind the scenes, you know, what I'm sensing is Anastasia's team has to do quite a bit of data engineering. I mean, oh, for sure. of course, it may be automated, but quite a bit of data engineering. Like, number one, they got to amass that data. They got to organize it, anonymize. You heard some of the stuff she was talking about. She really wants to kind of bring, hey, here's the community in general. Here's how things are working. Here, things aren't working. She has to anonymize the data to build these analytic uh, analytic reports. And it just kind of goes to show, right, no matter what process or business value you're trying to achieve, you know, data is key. And from the HashMap perspective and NGT perspective, you know, data strategy and data engineering is key on that as well. Well said, David. Data is the key. And then that's a wrap. So many wonderful guests and wish we could include all of them here. Yeah, but that'd be about a five-hour podcast. (laughs) I don't think people want to listen to this for five hours. (laughs) Yeah, I wish we could include them all still, though. Once again, we want to thank all our guests that have come on our show, HashMap on Tap, and share their experience, thoughts, and perspectives with us. Thank you so much. Yep, but sadly, now our coffee mugs and tea mugs are empty, so oh, yeah. <laughs> we must close the curtains. Yeah, once again, I want to thank everybody for listening as well. So taking that stroll down the hash map on tap memory lane, and this is uh, D&D signing off. Thanks, Thanks again. All. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.